Welcome to The Reload for Unconventional Leaders, where we help you craft the life you truly want by questioning the assumptions you have about how life works. My name is Sean, and I'll be your host on this journey. As a performance coach and special operations combat veteran, I help high-performing executives kick ass in their careers while connecting with deeply powerful insights that fuel their lives. Okay, back at it again. And as always, I am deeply grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with me. Obviously, there are no shortage, or there is no shortage, I should say, of options available in podcast land or YouTube land or TikTok land or whatever whatever you got going on. And so I really do appreciate the fact that you are taking this time to spend it with me. And more importantly, to spend it engaged in what I hope is an activity that challenges you, that challenges the way that you think, that challenges your assumptions of how the world works so that you ultimately can craft for yourself the best life possible. Obviously, as the tagline for the show conveys, the attempt is to not forego performance, but to be able to balance performance with a real deep and authentic connection to those elements of our lives that actually make our lives worth living, that actually have us excited to wake up and to tackle the day and to perform at our best. Now, performance doesn't mean putting on some sort of inauthentic show. And performance doesn't necessarily mean professional. But how is it that we show up to our relationships? How is it that we show up to ourselves? Where are we feeling a sense that we are actually full of energy and fully alive? And today's episode was inspired, as pretty much all of them are, (laughs) by a session that I had with a client not too terribly long ago. And this client made the observation that we don't learn from joy. That, and this was, uh, you know, based on the experiences that this client was having, that we learn from grief. And I want to reframe that a little bit, or, or at least reword it a little bit, so that it's a little bit more generalized. It's this idea that pain, and it doesn't have to be literal pain, it doesn't have to be a sprained ankle or uh, a broken heart, but some sort of discomfort or some sort of unhappiness or lack of fulfillment. However pain, discomfort, etc. shows up for you, that these elements of our life, these aspects that consume our awareness end up being quite frequently our most powerful teachers and why is that why is it that we find ourselves so frequently allowing pain to take the top spot in our awareness to some degree i think we have a evolutionary or biological answer 
in that really any organism out there, regardless of its level of complexity or, or lack thereof, is attempting to survive in a very physical way. And when we encounter circumstances or stimuli or factors, experiences that offer up challenges or potential threats to that continuation, that survival, then it doesn't take much uh, leap of logic (laughs) or much deductive reasoning to see how impactful that can be. And so on one level, there is a very simple and, and I would say easy explanation. And it might be easy for us to disregard or write off further inquiry, deeper inquiry, by just saying, oh, well, you know, I mean, that's, that's how all organisms are wired. And, oh, well, you know, that's, that's, just, that's just life. But by now, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that whenever I hear the word just my coaching ears start to perk up. Because quite frequently, when a person uses the word just, it typically indicates a presence of incomplete thinking. Well, this is just how things get done around here. Or, it's just not right. Just yesterday, (laughs) just... I was listening to a client unveil some issues that they were going through. And they were conveying a value that they hold dear. But they were framing it with the word just. It's just not right. But what that, again, circumvents or bypasses is the exploration of what is it in this person's experience, this person's history, family upbringing, cultural upbringing, that has them so attached, so connected to their worldview being the right one. Now, of course, as rational, logical creatures, we're able to come up with all kinds of rationalizations which are sometimes quite well-founded and sometimes also just excuses. In either case, allowing ourselves to sit in this place where we say, oh, well, this is just the way that it is, robs us of the opportunity to look deeper in order to create a better state for ourselves, a better reality for ourselves. Therefore, I think it's worth taking a look at, okay, what else might be creating this rank order that has pain showing up in that top spot in our awareness? And whether we actually want to allow that to be true going forward. Now, again, if we look at why might it be occupying this top spot, what else besides some sort of biological imperative 
could be informing them? Well, some of it's learned. We see our parents or our elders or our society at large. So at the time of this recording, we still, as a globe, a global community, are still dealing with COVID. And where is it that in our media, this idea of the pandemic, this idea of imminent ruin, suffering, pain, grabs our attention. And so as children, we often end up learning from and mimic from our elders. This is how we should do this. Okay. It's not until I cry that I get attention. And if you look at your relationships, you might see ways in which that plays out, whether that's personal or professional. As the saying goes, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And so frequently, especially in organizations, especially with the leadership clients that I work with, they are so frequently overtasked and so overstimulated, not just in terms of data points that are hitting their radar, but then also their lack of proper sleep, their lack of proper nutrition, because they've just got to get work done. There's so many things. And you don't know how heavy the weight on my shoulders is. And so there's so much occupying their cognitive bandwidth that quite frequently they, they are in a place where their radar is so cluttered that it's only the biggest hits that make it through. So to some degree, we do it to ourselves, especially the kind of people that I tend to work with. Now, that doesn't feel very good. Why are you pointing your finger at me, Sean? Well, don't worry. I do it to myself as well. So I'm, you know, I'm in the crowd. I'm, I'm part of the team. But we find ourselves in this place of overscheduling, overcommitting, because we have fear that we're going to let people down. That if I don't provide the answer or the solution, that I won't be as valuable. And I've done episodes on this in the past, so I'm not going to hit it that fully here. But taking a look at the ways in which we allow ourselves to get to a place of saturation, such that it's only the biggest hits on the radar that stick out, might be a worthy inventory. Doing a little self-audit there. And seeing, okay, what can come off your plate? So that you actually do have buffer, you actually do have uh, what they often refer to as white space on your calendar so that you can, and I don't just mean your daily calendar, I mean your, your yearly calendar. Where are you actually honoring boundaries in a way that allows you to come off the gas pedal and to not feel so overwhelmed all the time so that you actually have greater perspective and greater capacity to really truly recognize, hmm, yeah, okay, what if I did spend more of my time focused on something other than what is painful? 
how might I take myself out of firefighting mode? And if you've ever looked at the Eisenhower matrix, which I think sometimes people refer to as the Franklin Covey matrix because they really popularized it, but General Eisenhower during World War II created a simple four-box matrix, two axes, one was importance, and the other was urgency. And to be able to get away from firefighting mode, he very quickly started to categorize the very various things that were on his uh, to-do list as what was unimportant and not urgent. And that could just be tossed entirely. What was unimportant but urgent, at least unimportant to him, could that be delegated to somebody else? What was important and urgent? Now, this is often where a lot of my clients live. No, everything is important and everything is on fire right now. Okay. If your entire life is taken up by that, at some point, you have to break the cycle and watch some of those things in that quadrant burn to the ground. And it's your inability to actually allow yourself to watch something totally burn to the ground. Just a big, just total, as they like to say in the military, clusterfuck. And to recognize that what that is doing is that is buying you time and opportunity or space to focus on the last quadrant. What is important and not urgent? Because it is that quadrant that is of high strategic value. And that is the place where things are not yet painful. And yet, if we put attention there, that we will create tremendous value for ourselves and others down the road. But it's tricky. It's tricky to, again, combat or push back against that urgency that we feel especially when you have people in your face. And I feel it too, especially when it's people that we care about or people that we've assigned significance to. And the more significance we've assigned to somebody, the harder it is for us to just sit there and look at them and say, I hear you and I am not going to help you. And I am sorry that if you feel disappointed by that but I have to focus over here in order to be able to achieve more strategic results for myself, more long-term benefit for myself and others. Because what happens to us when we are in constant firefighting mode? To put it lightly, we get kind of crabby and we don't operate at our best. And that's what I want for you. So when we look at pain, pain as teacher, pain as motivator, pain as enslaver of us, we have to look at what it's teaching us. So frequently, pain shows up in circumstances that are multimodal or multivariable. 
meaning there are all kinds of factors that go into a certain situation. And yet, we have a very finite definition of what success means. And when we don't achieve that very narrow, finite definition, then all of a sudden, it's failure. Oh, God. And so it bears scrutiny to try to understand, you know, are we actually even focused on the right thing when we are allowing pain to teach us or to motivate us? Because if we're not, then that's when pain becomes the enslaver. So how might we begin to unpack that a little bit? Because it might sound a little fuzzy-wuzzy the way that I delivered it. I think we can look at what we might learn from how children interact with painful experiences. Now, hopefully by now, it's no mystery that children's brains are not fully developed. And as far as I've been able to research, for males, their brains fully develop somewhere between mid to late 20s. And for women, or females, I should say, somewhere early to mid-20s. That is a long time to not have a fully developed brain, the actual physical organ. And yet, and yet, from the time that we pop out of the womb, our minds, our minds are starting to make meaning. Our minds are starting to make stories. This means such and such. Oh, well, this other thing means something else. And of course, as the organ itself, the brain, gets more developed and more sophisticated, then the mind becomes more sophisticated as well. But we have to take a look at the foundation, the narrative foundation, or is that right? Yeah, I'll just stick with that, of what we're, what we have previously established. And again, I've alluded to this in previous episodes, but I think it's worth restating here, this idea, and I have clients who are in their 50s. And regardless of what decade you're in, every single one of my clients has at one point gotten this aha moment where they truly ask themselves, how am I still operating off of a belief that was formed when I was a child? Now, whether that experience was two decades prior or three or four or five, doesn't matter. What's involved here is that we are building on a foundation that was set when our brains and our capacity to really fully understand nuance was incomplete. I mean, what a cosmic joke that we spend most of our lives operating off of rules that were written when we were not actually developed enough to understand what we were writing. I mean, if you believe in God, hopefully you believe in a God that has a sense of humor. Because that's pretty fucking funny. So, what do we do about it? Well, looking at how children interact with painful experiences 
is useful from the perspective that as adults, and again, this is something that all my clients do, and I do it too, is we look back at childhood traumas and we dismiss them with the intellect of an adult. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, so I wasn't invited to the birthday party or I ended up getting spanked or I was highly embarrassed because I, you know, wet my pants as a kid. I, you know, I just need to get over that. I mean, that's just so silly. Okay. That's, that's great. But here's what it's not acknowledging is that to that child's mind with that undeveloped child brain, that was actually a really big deal. And we so frequently dismiss and minimize these experiences that happen so early in life. But the useful thing about this analysis is that if we do end up looking at how children deal with painful experiences through the eyes of an adult, we can begin to see what it is that we are actually doing to ourselves, the foundation that we have built upon. So what might be a good example? And... Okay, so let's say that there's a child, and this child really wants to be invited to a certain party. And they're really excited about it. And they, the date of the party is, is approaching, and they still haven't been invited. And then all of a sudden, like all the friends of the child are talking about the party and how great it's going to be, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they get to this place where the party has come and gone, and they were not invited. Now, one potential narrative coming off of that experience is that I am not worthy. I am not valuable as a friend. I suck. I'm worthless. Now, that child's parents may have been told, oh, yeah, hey, um, because your family had COVID, <laughs> topical, we're concerned about inviting your child to this party because we're not quite sure if you're uh, past any sort of contagious point. Now, details matter. But for children, even if they're told, hey, you know, this is the reason why, and you know, it's nothing against you, but they're just worried. They're just worried about the safety of the rest of the kids. And, you know, they want to make sure that we're just trying to ensure safety. And but this is the thing, like children so frequently latch on to any information that might call into question their worth, their value. To the exclusion of other information. They're unwilling to see the bigger picture. They're unwilling to acknowledge or accept that there might be some other explanation because they're so worried about their own value. And we do this too. If we apply for a job, for instance, or a position within a company that, uh, at which we already work, or we're trying to get promoted and we get passed over. Or somehow, you know, we don't end up getting 
the thing that we say we want. Well, instead of looking and saying, oh, okay, well, maybe that just wasn't a good fit, and it's not some sort of allegation against my value, maybe the company was just looking for something different, and perhaps I wasn't seeing the ways in which what they were looking for was not something that I brought to the table, we spin ourselves in circles and twist ourselves up with this internal judgment that we were not enough. And what would it do for us if we were actually able to take a step back and see that bigger picture? Are we seeing that we're focused on the right thing or not? Where is it that we're so fixated because of the pain we feel on only one variable in that equation? Now, what might happen if we reoriented our perspective so that pain was not our most powerful teacher and motivator? I would argue that what would end up happening is that pain would lose or at least have minimized its capacity to enslave us. Because again, if we're focused on the wrong part of the equation or we're not seeing all the variables in the equation, then we end up ever more isolated, ever more defensive, ever more protective of ourselves. So if we go back to that imagery with the child and the, and the party, well, if the child isn't capable of adapting to or wrapping in the additional information that, oh yeah, hey, um, it wasn't, it was nothing against you. It was just, you know, bad luck that you had COVID so close to the time of this party. And they're not trying to ostracize you. They're not trying to exclude you in the long term. They're just trying to maintain their own sense of safety in the short term. And there has been no compromise to the relationship. But if they're not, if the child isn't able to see that, then all of a sudden, how do they show up to that group of friends going forward? Are they more withdrawn? Are they more guarded? And then what does that in turn spark or trigger in the friend group? Oh, geez, you know, Johnny seems to be not really responding to us. Have we done something wrong? Does Johnny not like us? And it creates this like pretty self-destructive loop or you can think of it sort of as a, a sideways figure eight where the, the, the wounding just perpetuates because we're not actually having clear understanding of all the variables in that equation. So to free ourselves from that, to be able to allow ourselves to have the most options possible, what might we do? How might we reorient our perspective away from pain and toward taking good things and making them great? Well, as with pretty much everything, you have to set aside focused time to review what happened 
whether that's an after action review or whether that's a retrospective, whatever phrasing you like, or just thinking time, journaling time, contemplation time, going for a walk and, and getting deep into your thoughts about what the it was. Was it a project? Was it applying for a job or seeking a promotion? Was it a relationship? Romantic, platonic, professional, whatever. How is it that you might see the bigger picture, see more of the variables that are involved? Now, for many, if your pain is measured by failure, as it, I would say, usually is, for example, failed relationship, failed project, failed to win a new client or contract, et cetera, et cetera, then I would argue first assess whether you are or were looking at the appropriate success metrics. Now, as one example, several months ago, I was working with a client, and this client is the founder and effectively CEO of, of their company. And the company lost its second largest account. And at the beginning of the session, there was a lot of connection or attachment to failure. Pain. No, you don't know how big a deal this is. You know, this is, I mean, it was, it made up the second largest dose of our revenue. It was such a big client. And it could have, could have gotten even bigger. Client could have gotten us even more business. And so my client, in the beginning of the conversation, was so focused on all the things that they thought they had lost. All these potential gems out there. And as we started to pull the layers back, as we started to get to a place of a little bit more emotional calm, we started to learn that the client was actually kind of shitty. The client was unorganized. The client was always introducing a great deal of stress on my client's team. There were a lot of, again, what my client perceived to be unfair expectations, poor communication, fire drills. And a lot of this potential business that was, quote-unquote, out there, hadn't really materialized. And as the conversation started to get deeper and deeper, and we started to look at, well, okay, well, what are the proper success metrics for you, for your company? My client began to recognize that process matters, that quality of relationship matters, that it was this, this notion in the beginning that they had been spellbound by the dollars that were being thrown at the team, at the company, by this second largest client. 
it felt like such a such an uplift in their early days to have this other client this this second largest account spending what had previously been such a exorbitant fee on my clients companies services that they had allowed themselves to be blinded by the fact that this was a client that they didn't actually want because of how terrible the working relationship was on a pretty consistent basis. And that all the stress that this second largest client was dumping on the team was affecting retention or I guess attrition. <laughs> and so as we started to pull that apart, we started to really see, okay, yeah, what would be better for my client success metrics? And that part of those success metrics would include the nature or characteristics, the quality of the relationship, not just the paycheck. And also, what is the quality of the work? Does his company and the client company have a mutual vision, a shared vision of creativity? of where they want to end up, of what they want to do together, how they want to impact their particular market niche. So getting a tighter idea of, are you actually looking at the proper success metrics? That comes with that analysis or that widening gaze or view about what variables you're seeing and what variables you're not seeing. Now, assuming that you did have the quote-unquote proper, in your view, definition of success, and you're still slathering yourself in the quote-unquote I failed or worse, quote-unquote I'm a failure narrative, well, then it can be useful to ask yourself, how is that helping you improve? Because you're still very much subject to the pain as most powerful teacher phenomenon there. Is it actually helping you improve? So frequently when people are motivated by the whip, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll hop, they'll jump when they get cracked on the ass. But what happens in the long term? They become resentful. They start to look for the door. And we do this to ourselves too. All number of clients who have tried to motivate themselves with inner shaming messages. They need to, they just need to buckle down. They just need to be more disciplined. They need to get over it. Stop being so weak. Typically, they've spent years trying to achieve a certain goal and it perpetually eludes, eludes them. Why? Because even when we do it to ourselves, we become resentful. And eventually we slide backwards because we're just so tired of getting beat down. 
So what would be more effective at yielding a more effective result in the future if, if you've already taken a look at, you know, whether the success metrics were proper or whether the definition of success was good to go from, from your perspective, how might you focus just on where things can be improved without the narrative of failure? There's a book that I've mentioned in the past, but haven't mentioned in a long time, and that's Mindset by Carol Dweck. And with Mindset, one of the things that she's constantly talking about is growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And that you know, the essential piece of growth mindset is where is it that you're connected to this idea, foundationally connected, that, okay, it didn't work this time. But I can improve, and I can do it better next time. Just recently, I had another conversation with a client. This client is an entrepreneur, and their business is seen some, some significant bumps in the road in terms of profitability and in terms of retention and just feeling shaken. And so my client is was in this place where they were really concerned about the failure of the business. And what we ended up focusing on, in line with Carol Dweck's idea of growth mindset, is not only this idea that, okay, even if it fails, in this case, I mean, the, it is the business, even if the business fails entirely, you have to let everybody go, shutter the doors, etc. Worst case scenario. How is it that this client can stay connected to the idea that they are an individual who is capable of creating that they have the qualities inside themselves to bring something new into this world. That they are capable of thinking and looking into the marketplace to see where they can create value. And where is it that they are able to let go of this notion that the business that they have already founded is their only shot. And having my client connect with that attitude, that mindset, and also the remembrance that they are the kind of person who can create value. They are the kind of person who can create. Then all of a sudden, the heat starts to dissipate from the belief that the current company, the current venture, is the only thing that they have going. And as that pressure starts to recede, then they begin to access greater levels of creativity, greater levels of effective problem solving. They see the wider picture. Because when we're freaked out, we go into tunnel vision. That's how our brains work. That's how our, you know, the neurotransmitters that get leaked into the system and the hormones that get leaked into the system, they tend to focus our attention. Because those elements of our biology were formed when we were 
in a predator-prey cycle in a very active and very physical way. And so we have systems built into us that create laser-like focus. The problem with that laser-like focus, though, in the modern context, whether that's business or whether that's your relationships in your personal life, is that we start to cast off, or maybe that's not really the right image, uh, we start to segregate and plainly just don't see other factors that would actually allow us to create better solutions. So I think that taking a look at how it is that you're actually going to improve, even in the circumstances where you believe full-heartedly that you did fail at a certain endeavor, that switching or refocusing the lens will actually lead to better results in the future. Switching gears a little bit, because what we've just addressed still takes a look at your world through the lens of pain because it's tied so intimately to, well, I have already failed. So switching gears, what is it inside you that has you locked onto pain being the required ingredient before you begin to take action? As we talked about at the beginning of this episode, is it simple biology and you don't want to do anything about it? If so, well, why are you listening to this show? I mean, this whole show, not just this episode, this whole show is about questioning. It's about challenging and not allowing ourselves to stay in the status quo, not allowing ourselves to have the word just be such, a, such an easy and readily applied dismissal that takes us off the hook, that that takes our responsibility and throws it in the trash can. Now maybe when we look at what has you locked on to pain being that primary teacher and motivator, maybe it's that you've never entertained the idea that you could, that it is possible to structure your worldview toward taking good to great instead of being in firefighting mode. And if that resonates for you, what might you do to change it? Do you have to sit down on a daily basis or perhaps multiple times per day to journal or to actively, consciously, explicitly reaffirm that you are going to change your worldview? Or do you believe that you do not deserve to take your life from good to great or aspects of your life? Are you trapped by this notion of tall poppy syndrome? If you don't know what tall poppy syndrome is, it's a, an expression that the, the, our cousins, American cousins, in Great Britain and Australia and some of the other former colonies like to use. And it describes 
aspects of a culture where people of high status are resented, attacked, cut down, or criticized because their achievements make them stand out from their peers. And so quite frequently, because we do have this aspect of ourselves that is very tribal, that is very comparative, where am I in relationship to the others? We can frequently implicate a lack of deservedness. Who am I to stand out? Who am I to take good to great? Who am I to challenge those around me to go from good to great? In America, they have that beautiful saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay, I can get on board with that in some ways. But there's a difference between plumbing that's not broken and not fixing that and trying to innovate something that changes the game. And especially in American culture, where there is so much entrepreneurialism, I think that there is something so powerful to be gained or to be learned from that entrepreneurial culture, where we have individuals who have taken a look at, well, this is kind of how it's always worked, but God, what if it worked better? Whatever better means. What if we allowed ourselves to dream? What if we allowed ourselves to see something that was beyond the status quo that has always existed? In light of that, that's the spirit of entrepreneurialism and, and being able to innovate. We might like to take a, a little stroll down history lane and to get to this story of the basketball hoop. Now, at this point, basketball is a sport practiced or played around the world. So I'm hoping that no matter where you are in the world, that this is something that could be instructive for you. So in looking at some articles online, we see that uh, Dr. James Naismith, the inventor of basketball, was born in 1861, grew up in Ontario, Canada, and later ended up working uh, for the YMCA training school where he invented the sport of basketball to try to help the children stay warm during recess in the winter. And he invented this, this sport in 1891. So basketball has been around for a little bit. And the very first basketball hoop, if you will, was a peach basket. And essentially all that ended up happening was he just kind of attached this, this basket that used to, was previously used to carry peaches or sell peaches at, at a market at about 10 feet high. And then the kids were supposed to toss a ball into it. And what's interesting is that it's not until 1906, 1906, so from 1891 to 1906, everyone playing basketball had to use a ladder to climb up and get the ball out of the basket. And I would be willing to bet that those in initial individuals who were playing the game would have said something to the effect of, well, yeah, I mean, it works, right? It ain't broke. Don't fix it. But in 1906, somebody said, you know, hey, what if we cut the bottom out of this thing and we actually allow ourselves to have the ball drop through the hoop. 
so that we don't have to have a, a damn ladder that slows down the game because we have to climb up the thing every time to get the ball out of the basket. So I think that's, I don't know, just kind of like a little funny anecdote that hopefully conveys this, this principle that sure, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay, fine. But humans, you included, have throughout our entire history sought to improve, sought to find ways to make things better. And it's not necessarily the case that it was because things were on fire and needed to be fixed first. But until you are able to get into a a headspace or a, a mindset or an attitude that you do deserve to take good to great, then you'll never try. Another question probably worth asking is, are the fires you're fighting, i.e. the problems you're trying to fix, even worth fighting or fixing? So frequently, we just kind of cruise on inertia. We get set on a certain trajectory. And this happens in the business place. This happens in romantic relationships. Excuse me. This happens in family dynamics for sure. You know, how many of you have siblings and the way that you interact as adults is not too far away from the way that you interacted as children? Don't you feel like your relationship should have, I don't know, maybe evolved a little bit in that time that you might be able to show up to each other differently? So we so frequently don't actually allow ourselves to do a review and to allow things to come off of our plate or to actively take them off of our plate and say, I'm not doing that anymore because we get stuck in these ruts. And so again, if you don't give yourself conscious and deliberate and intentional time to review and to then grapple with the emotion that comes up when you think about, Oh, I don't know. I've held on to this one for a long time and I don't know. It might still, I might still need to do it. I might still need to submit that TPS report or I might still need to, I don't know, feel obligated to send Christmas cards out every year or to um, maintain a certain role inside the family dynamic. I'm the peace builder. I'm the peacemaker. I'm the one that has to ensure that I never blow my calm. I'm, I'm always there trying to create goodwill and smooth things over. Do you? Do you have to be that person? Do you have to continue to take that action, perform that task? What would your life be like if you allowed yourself to reorient your worldview so that you focused on proactively taking good to great? instead of waiting for something to become a problem before you do something about it. What in your life might fit this model of taking good to great? I've made this interesting observation over the years that I've been coaching people, and I so often hear, eh, it's okay, or, hmm, yeah, it's not bad. Or, 
my favorite. Uh, you know, can't complain. We seem so attached to minimizing or tamping down our experience. What are we doing? I mean, are we hedging bets? Not getting our hopes up? Are we so ruled by a fear that we'll end up disappointed that we don't even try in the first place? That we don't allow ourselves to entertain something more? One thing is certain when we live in that land of meh, and that is that we are robbing ourselves of a chance to feel lively and full of energy, to truly taste the fruits of this life. And it reminds me of a a quote that comes from Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, and is quite frequently labeled as man in the arena. Now, uh, hopefully, forgive the sexist references here, but Theodore Roosevelt delivered this speech entitled Citizenship in a Republic at the Sorbonne in Paris on April 23, 1910. And the speech is popularly known, as I said, as the man in the arena. And there's a, a, a passage from that speech that, to me, is, is quite applicable. So I'll read it to you now. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And the reason that I find that passage to be so powerful in the context of what we're talking about today, this context of where we are trying to reframe pain, failure, that we are trying to expand the way in which we view this world, is that if we allow our base nature to run the show, then we will be one of those cold and timid souls because we will never put ourselves into that great place of vitality to have really, truly attempted something amazing for ourselves. And whether you're an Elon Musk looking to put people on Mars or whether your ambitions are humbler makes no difference. Where is it that you put yourself in the arena? Where is it that you focus on how to 
venture forth greatly. How can you make good into great? That does it for today. And as always, I hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful week. If you like what you're hearing, feel free to like and subscribe and follow and obviously share with people that you care about. I hope that this is clarifying, enlightening, challenging, whatever most serves you. Until next time, take care of each other.